the simplest commercial baking resource. Brought to you by Bakerpedia and hosted by Mark Florka. With 45 years of industry experience, Mark knows the ins and outs of baking. He is Bakerpedia's community forum manager and baking instructor. He's here to share knowledge and help you grow connections. You're listening to the Baked In Science Podcast. Hello, everyone. Time to get baked in science. I'm your host, Mark Florka, and I'm also a Bakerpedia influencer. In this episode, we will meet an industry veteran and matriarch archetype who has influenced and guided so many in the baking industry for decades, Marta Stollier. Well, very nice to meet you, Marta. So, welcome everyone to another Baked in Science podcast, and this is a very special one today. And today, we're going to be discussing Marta's gift. And if you've not heard of Marta's gift before, this is your opportunity to support something amazing and learn about an amazing person. Marta Stollier is with me. Marta, please introduce yourself a little bit, and we'll get into more of the nitty gritty. Well, <laughs> nitty gritties. I'm not sure. <laughs> I am a teacher. I basically teach people how to bake for bakeries、mm -hmm. and how to open bakeries. And I've op opened over 300 bakeries. Wow. Well, I'm old, so you know. <laughs> I, a gentleman never asks, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I just have been so fortunate in my life to have my baking take me around the world,、mm -hmm. and it has truly taken me around. The world because many times people come to me for a month or two months or three months and then when they get ready to open their bakery I go to their place、That's、and、amazing. help them set it up I help them find the right equipment and I I do layouts so that the architect knows where to put everything and not just because it's convenient there's not enough of you around <laughs> there really <is. laughs> well you know very very few people know how to bake for a bakery oh absolutely agree even with kids. I've I've worked so often with architects where they just have no idea. They do what looks aesthetically pleasing, or they're thinking of of how things work in a home. But it's it's completely different when you're in a production <laughs> process and and the workflow and stuff that is required. You're so right. I mean, it's just amazing. I'll walk into a place and there, you know, there's a an eighty quart mixer just as you walk in the door,、mm -hmm. but it's next to the water because it fit there. You know,、yeah. as the、mm -hmm. as the bakery grew, well, they fit it in. And it,、yeah. and of course, I'm really big at tearing everything apart and putting it together in the right place. That helps a lot, though. That really does.、Right? Oh, it's huge.、Yeah. It's absolutely huge. And people will say to me a year later, "Do you know that we saved, you know, like twenty thousand dollars just in people walking back and forth?" Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> yep, absolutely. Yeah, time is money. As a lot of people who have worked with me always remember, I dislike when things are touched too often. It's、right. you know, it's the same thing. Is like it shouldn't be handled so much. It's like you know, handle it once or twice if it has to be. But it's a waste of time, and it and it damages the product more mostly. Oh yeah, and you look at things and think, how many.
many times did they touch this? Make contact. Yeah, yeah. We spoke a little bit beforehand. Your surname, Stolier, is of Russian origin. It binds us, I guess, with something else indirectly in that you, you said it, it means cabinet maker. Is that correct? Like a finished cabinet maker. Finished mm-hmm. cabinet maker. Yeah. My father was actually an art carpenter and cabinet maker in Germany in his youth. And that was what brought him to Canada. And now I read that you started your experience and training in France. So you went right to start with the best. Well, actually, it's sort of weird, but I was a shoe designer. Oh, wow. (laughs) And as a shoe designer in New York, I would go to Europe four times a year. I fell in love with a an Italian hard roll. Mm-hmm. And this ha- Italian hard roll is called a Michete or a Rosato. Mm-hmm. And it's empty, right? Mm-hmm. It's totally empty in the middle. Mm-hmm. And when I came across it, they served this round ball and a spoon. Mm-hmm. And you're supposed to bang this hard roll. And there was my salad. Mm-hmm. And I fell in love. I said, this is something I have to do. I, I absolutely <laughs> have to do it. And I had a friend who was very well known in Italy in the fashion world. And he went to a friend of his in Venice and said, I have this friend who's a shoe designer, but she really wants to know how to make a maquette or a rosato. Mm-hmm. Well, over the years, over a 10-year period, I put in almost two full years in that bakery. Wow. I would work all day as a shoe designer, and then I would sleep for about three hours. And then I'd get up and I'd go to the bakery oh. and I'd bake all night. <laughs> and after about four years, they started giving people vacations. Mm-hmm. Because they knew I was coming. (laughs) Yeah, so I I ended up, I guess, I don't know. But they just automatically said, okay, now you're going to be a bread baker this this time. Wow. Sometimes I made eclairs and croissants. Mm -hmm. I never knew what I was going to be, but boy, I had to learn. But modern day, what we're calling it is cross-training. Yes, exactly. And then in France... There was a, it still is, a restaurant called La Marais. Mm-hmm. And I said, I really like these little these little eclairs that are two inches long. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that takes the saint, absolutely a saint, to fill those little things. And I said, they were just really amazing. And he said, well, you want to bake? Come bake with us. Come on in at midnight. And so, as it turned out, I did about the same thing over a 10-year period of making very, very high-end French pastries. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, I was very lucky. Very, very lucky. It sounds like a lot more than just luck. I mean, you were lucky to meet some people who were willing to give you the training, but you your passion and your determination, I think that is really, that's sometimes what we don't see enough of anymore today, right? No, and people think that if they go to a culinary school, they're a genius. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and actually, I've never met anybody from that graduated from a culinary school that could walk into a bakery and do anything. Yeah, it's just a foundation. All it is. is it's, it's just a foundation, yeah. nothing more. Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. they have to be willing to, to do 200 or 500 or 1,000 yep. of something. You and know, don't and tell me that you're bored with it. No. In that respect, your story, you know, it reminds me of where chefs always like to point out is Julia Child. So, Maybe you were Julia Child's inspiration, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Julia and I were friends. Oh, amazing. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. We were friends all because of some Russian black bread. Mm -hmm. I had a student here that was going to go to Julia to work on the book Baking with Julia. Mm -hmm. And my student was going to be her next project for the book. 
And I said, well, why don't you take a loaf of Russian black bread to her? And about four days later, I get a phone call. I need another four of those loaves of bread. (laughs) So when I met her in person many years later, she looked tired. People take too much out of people like that. Mm -hmm. They would stand there in a line of and having six and seven books written by Julia mm-hmm. that they wanted her to sign all of them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I just walked up to her and I said, I know where the back door is. Yeah. <laughs> and that was at Bob's Red Mill in Oregon. Oh, wow. So yeah. that, that brings me to like, you know, you went from, you know, being a shoe designer and learning in Italy and France and now you're in Oregon and you're opening a French bakery and it was called the Breads, Breads of, France. of France. Yeah. Yeah. How did that come about? Well, the Humane Society here in Bend needed money. And I moved from Paris to Bend in 1972. And I said, well, we could have a bake sale, mm-hmm. but I don't want to have a bake sale like other people have bake sales. Mm-hmm. I ran an article in the newspaper and said, anybody who wants to bake for the bake sale must come and take a two-day class with Marta. (laughs) Very good. (laughs) Excellent. And and then I assigned them different products that they would be making for the bake sale. And nobody had ever heard of a bake sale that had made $2,000 in a strip mall. And we did. Yeah, that's excellent. You know, it seems to me that I keep coming across this more, you know, more in our trade and our well amongst bakers and pastry chefs that we seem to be a philanthropic group. There's a lot <laughs> of us who do these types of things. It seems it runs in our, our blood in the industry that philanthropy. Well, because yeah. we can see yeah. the possibilities. Yeah, I'm sure that's it. Yeah, you got it. Yeah. 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 You know, when we can see the possibilities and say, well, yes, we can just do that. And so that sort of helps, I guess, clarify for me is that because one of the thoughts is like when you opened your bakery was in the, the early 80s. 79 to 84. Yeah. Yes. So, and that was like major recession at the time. I remember in oh, the early 80s. You know, and nobody so, remembers that recession. Yeah. Except me. Oh, I do. I, I paid 18.5% was... interest on a car loan. <laughs> <laughs> I was hiring people with doctorate's degrees to do dishes because they had no jobs. And the federal government was paying half of the salary if I'd hire somebody and train them for a different job. Oh, wow. And for six months, they'd pay yeah. half the salary. And that was fascinating because I had everybody had at least graduated from college. <laughs> it's not. Yeah. master's and doctorate's degrees, because the people at the lower pay could find jobs. Mm -hmm. The first people that were laid off were the people that cost the most money. Yes, exactly. And I didn't hire a single person that had ever been a baker. I wanted to train them myself. I I experienced some of that myself as well, where I got laid off and then I volunteered. I went to go. I said, like, you know, I'll be a dishwasher. I I just want to work. I just want to work. And they were, no, you're overqualified. We're not going to hire you. And I took the opposite thing. I'm going to hire you because you can't get another job. No, that's great. And they were were glad. That is absolutely, that's terrific. We were closed Sunday and Monday so that I could have 100% full-time workers, no part-time. And it's 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 almost like we're going through some of that again with the, I mean, at least what I hear a lot in the baking and restaurant industry is that it's really hard to find staff. And yet at the same time, a lot of people are saying they got laid off 
during the pandemic and they're not going back to work. It's crazy, right? It, um, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense at all. I had 10 employees at all times at my bakery and like an idiot, I had three six-foot cases. That's a lot. And in, in a town of 16 to 18,000 people, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody knows how bad that can be. That can but be tough. That can be very full. tough. Again, you saw a possibility rather than seeing the risk. I could see the possibilities. I knew that there were a lot of people in Bend that had traveled. I made a specific French bakery. Mm-hmm. I didn't have any cinnamon rolls. Mm-hmm. I didn't have any, you know, all these different things that Americans tend to like that are overly sweet. Mm-hmm. In fact, at the time, my supplier would come to me and say, where are you buying your sugar? <laughs> and I'd say, from you. Mm-hmm. Well, they knew how many tons of flour yeah. and how much sugar. And I wasn't meeting those. So they were sure I was buying it from, from somebody <laughs> else. But yeah, it's just the Europeans don't use the amount of sugar that Americans do. When I came over with Movenpick, I, I came from Germany to Canada with the, a Swiss restaurant chain. There's a higher fructose portion in sucrose in North America because of the high amount of cane sugar that we use. And it actually tends to be slightly sweeter. So mm-hmm. when we use mm-hmm. a lot of European recipes, we even tend to cut back on the sugar some more to keep it at right. that same sweetness level. So or you use apricot glaze to yeah. add some sweetness to a product as it comes out of the oven instead of having it both in a glaze and in a product because mm-hmm. you can find that you don't need as much sugar in a product. Exactly. Yep. Absolutely. So yeah. it was very interesting because I just didn't, I did it one way. That was my and, way. And so with those things where, is there a favorite that you remember of yours from that bakery? Is there a, a favorite bread or a pastry or something that you used to either enjoy making or eating? Well, the mascot cake. Okay. The mascot cake became the wedding cake. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm, because Americans wanted a wedding cake. And I thought the most elegant of all pastries in France is really the mascot cake. Can you give us sort of a, a summary of the, the composition? Because I don't think most people are familiar with it. A mascot cake is basically ground almonds mm-hmm. and rum and very, very little flour. Mm-hmm. And of course, separation of egg yolks from egg whites. Mm-hmm. And it rises minimally. Mm-hmm. But it, it's still really tender and delicate in a way. Oh, it's so tender and delicate. And then the icing, I would make almonds and cook them in uh, simple syrup mm-hmm. and then grind it. Like your own marzipan. That's right. Exactly. And put that in the buttercream. Oh, very nice. And that's the way they did in La Marais. Mm-hmm. And so I became known for the wedding cake. 90% of all wedding cakes that left my bakery were mascot all cakes. All mascot cakes. Oh, that's mm-hmm. nice. So the thing that really amazes me that I really want to know more about is your trips to Asia. So you started <laughs> doing work with, with U.S. The, Department of Agriculture, U.S. Department of Agriculture in connection with their wheat support. U.S. Wheat, U.S. Wheat, okay. Oregon Wheat Commission, Montana Wheat Commission. Everything gets together in a group called U.S. Wheat. And so you've made over forty trips to Asia. I'm alive to tell it. Did yeah, you pick I up some 40- of the Chinese? 
Chinese while you with them or any no, other languages? Right. No, but I lived in Japan before, mm-hmm. and and then I lived in Taiwan. I lived in Japan for five years and Taiwan for seven years. Mm-hmm. I would look for somebody in China that had dyed black hair <laughs> or had a white part, and I would say to them, "Sima sen onigashimasu," and I knew they had to speak Japanese yeah. because they had lived through that era. Yep. So they didn't want to speak Japanese, but they would tell me where to go mm-hmm. in a nice way. Mm-hmm. But many times I would teach in some place like Beijing University or some of the other Guangdong baking school in the down in the uh, Guangzhou area. Mm-hmm. And they would have people from eight and 10 different areas. They were all bakers and they were coming to like Beijing University to learn how to teach. Could they understand each other? No, no. <laughs> That's what I thought. No. We could find translators for eight. And there was always that Hupei province that we could never find a translator for. I would always make whoever it was from Hupei province, I'd make them my assistant. Mm-hmm. And they do it. They learned immediately. That's cool. That is really because, cool. Because first of all, they're in front of everyone and they didn't want to look stupid. They were really wonderful. I would make one month at a time. I would go for one month at a time. Mm-hmm. And I have been probably every place that China ever had a problem. Wow, that's amazing. And wherever they had a problem, they would send me. In the beginning, they would tell me where they were going to send me. But then later on, I thought that I was going down to, you know, maybe the hot region of an island of China and find out that I'm up in Beijing or in Inner Mongolia. The Chinese started not wanting me to know where I was going because they were afraid that people were going to try to get to me and I would find a way to get them out of the country. Ah, yeah. Yeah. So they they wouldn't tell me where I was going because they were sure people would want to defect. Mm -hmm. I had pansy lamb for, I would say, half of my trips. About a third of my trips, I went with Peter Souter. Mm -hmm. And he was considered the foremost chocolatier in the world for I don't know how many years. Mm -hmm. The Peninsula Hotel in Hong Kong had hired him to put in the chocolate program for Mm -hmm. them. And so we hired him because I was teaching breads in China, and Peter was teaching cakes and pastries. The last 20 years, especially as things have shifted there, there's been so much demand for Western style uh, foods and culture and stuff like that too. So I'm sure Doris and Peter's skills were high in demand. I was called a yeast specialist. I didn't know that that's what I was, but the problem going in just before Mao died, of course, was very hardcore communist Mm -hmm. everything. And one thing they would do is they'd only allow us to import one of each kind of an oven so that they could copy it. Yep. And so that was sort of hard because there were no parts. And so, you know, I can put together a 20-quart Hobart and take it apart and put it, yeah, and fix it because I had to learn. Ovens, you get real smart on ovens real fast. Yep. You hope and pray that they want gas ovens. <laughs> yes, yeah. But electric ovens were always iffy. And then when you would get the oven, back from the customs, they would always hand you a big bag of things they didn't know where it went. You've been there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, that is absolutely fascinating. One of the other things I uh, wanted to, you know, make sure everybody understands is you started out saying that you've been teaching. And so you've been operating the International School of Baking for over 
30 years now. Either 84 or 86. I never could quite remember. And the Chinese said, oh, we're going to send some people to your school. And mm-hmm. I said, I don't have a school. Yes, we're going to send six of them to your school. That's why I'm not quite sure when I did. Because <laughs> oh, that's interesting. And I've, I've seen some of the pictures on your website and it looks like you've had a lot of really happy students. And I've also noticed that what you do is very customized and very focused, right? Do you have any unique or special memories from your time teaching or, or funny incidences or something that you you could share with us? Well, I will say that what's pretty funny and it's sort of universal is people wanting to open a bakery, but they do not want to make a wedding cake. They're not even going to learn because they're not going to make wedding cakes. And I would say to them, well, you can come back and learn wedding cakes, but you're going to be making wedding cakes. Mm-hmm. No, I will never make a wedding cake. It's too, tra- oh no, too traumatic. I can't do it. Four years later, I'd say, how is your wedding cake business? (laughs) And I would explain to them, when you become a bakery to somebody, your bakery is their bakery. They're not going to go to somebody else for a wedding cake. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, they want a wedding cake that is reasonable and that they can enjoy, but that is the flavors and the things that they're accustomed to from your bakery, from your style and things like that. There are, you know, specialized wedding cake makers out there and stuff, but not everybody's ready to drop $2,000 on a wedding cake. I mean, they're beautiful works of art, but it's a completely different category altogether, right? It's totally different. The most I ever did was a $5,000 birthday cake for the Rajneesh at Rajneesh Puram, a group <laughs> oh, of amazing. Yeah, it was his birthday, and he wanted fruitcake for a thousand people. Yeah, that's, that's a lot of fruitcake. And now you can see why it was five thousand dollars. Uh huh. Uh huh. That was probably the funniest one because long live our delightful master. I always like that word delightful. You can always tell when it's been translated from another language. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that's very true. Yeah, and I guess that kind of is also that's probably one of the more challenging requests that you've done is that $5,000 fruitcake. That would be incredible. I mean, I can't, I wouldn't know where to begin to plan all of that. I mean, just, you know, how many batches and how many troughs and marinating fruits and everything is like, holy smokes. I can remember doing Christmas pudding at the Royal York Hotel and we would get old wine barrels to age it in, right? Right. (laughs) It seems that The baking industry has a never-ending appetite for learning, and you've always done all kinds of operations from retail bakers to large bakeries that you've consulted and and trained in and things like that. And so you're continuing to do things. Oh, yes. You know, when are you going to stop or what's your next adventure, right? (laughs) Well, I do have one client that booked me for five years, and that was, I think, about seven years ago. Mm -hmm. He booked me for five years to come for three weeks for Easter and one month for Christmas. Very nice. And that was to add the high-end things, and whether it was, you know, 12-inch chocolate eggs or... Mm-hmm. or whatever it was, but things that would be over a hundred dollars. That's just fun. I mean, I go into that bakery and I, of course, I know where everything is because I designed the bakery. Mm-hmm. He was my student. So every formula. Convenient. <laughs> and when I go into a bakery where the, all the formulas are mine, it's so easy. 
I'm not saying, well, why are you doing that? <laughs> yeah, going into a strange place where things are not in the normal fashion or things like that, that, that sometimes takes just a day or two getting things organized, getting your bearings exactly. and stuff, right? Uh -huh. And it helps that way when everything is already, it's mise en place, everything in its place and a place for everything. That's right. And believe me, everything stays in that place. <laughs> no, I've been very, very fortunate to have wonderful students. I keep track of about 38 of them on Instagram. And, and that's fun. That's excellent. That's amazing. Yeah. It's, it's amazing to have this opportunity to get to know you. You're in the process right now that a documentary film is being made about your career and your passion. And as I mentioned in the beginning, it's called Marta's Gift. Is that correct? Yes. And so there's going to be a, a Kickstarter with this to raise some money to be able to complete the film. And so I guess if we just Google Marta's Gift, we should be able to find that Kickstarter. Yes. And it's a great opportunity for people to contribute to that. Give back to someone who has given us so much over so many years. And I, I won't say how many. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for bringing up the film and our Kickstarter campaign, which will raise the funds we need to complete the project. We've already mm -hmm. been at this for a few years. Wow. I hope you can see from the exchange you've had with Marta today just how influential one person from one small town in a state called Oregon can be ar around the world. I think that is really the, the most important message here is, you know, the, the gift that Marta has given us, all of the things, the, the hundreds of students that she's trained and the, the hundreds of bakeries that she's opened. That's all incredible. And to say that this has all been influenced by one person and we can all make a difference in the world. Maybe we're not going to open a hundred bakeries, but we can contribute. We, we can be that one person. Absolutely. Yes. And that's the inspiration. I really hope people will take away from this interview and from watching the documentary when, when it's done. Wonderful. And the film is a documentary short. Mm -hmm. And it focuses on one of Marta's students that she actually mentioned in her remarks, lives in a very small town in Wyoming. Mm -hmm. And he and his family decided to start a bakery. Mm -hmm. Well, he always had a passion for baking, but they decided to start the bakery because they have a daughter with Down syndrome. Ah, yes. She was about to graduate from high school. She's now 25. Now 25. But when she was graduating from high school, the family really wanted a productive future for her. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And she loves to work and she loves to interact with the community and she loves her family. That's awesome. And now Eleanor is like the star attraction at the bakery. And the other unintended consequence of all this is that the town itself is revitalizing around the bakery. And wow. people drive for hours from hours adjoining dates. Marta can tell you the they come in with lists, right, Marta? Mm -hmm. Oh, they come mm -hmm. in. First of all, they've driven four and a half mm -hmm. hours from Denver or halfway across the state of Wyoming, mm -hmm. and they have like a list of four or five friends, mm -hmm. and each one takes a shopping bag. And <laughs> when they finish, they walk out with anywhere between one hundred and four hundred dollars worth of product. Yeah, wow. and that happens That's all amazing. the time. This has been amazing, Marta. This has been absolutely amazing. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us.
Thank you for listening. You've made it to the end for this episode. That third voice you heard join in toward the end is Sheila Rittenberg, one of the producers who was working with Marta on the film Marta's Gift. We were having such an engaging conversation, I just had to share some of that with you as well. As I'm sure you can gather, Marta is a fascinating person and many more stories that can be told. Be sure to surf on over to Kickstarter or use the mobile app and search for Marta's Gift. That is Marta with a D as in Delta. Anything at all you can contribute will be greatly appreciated and help to bring to completion Marta's story to share with the world. Until our next episode of Baked in Science, be well and happy baking. <laughs>